Let's go right to the Word of God as we're in week number three, and I've determined this, of six in our series we're calling From the Beginning. We're learning in this series all about God's design for sex sexuality. Now, if you missed either of the first two weeks in this series, I really encourage you to go back, get caught up. You can do that through our Facebook, uh, Hope Fellowship MD, or you can do that um, through our website once it gets back up, or you can go to our YouTube channel. I don't know if you know that. We have a YouTube channel. Uh, all the sermons are posted on uh, weekly. All the broadcasts, you can go just look it up, Hope Fellowship, Chestertown, Maryland. You'll see it, and you'll be able to get caught up that way. I think it's important that you go back if you haven't heard the first two in this series because everything we've talked about so far really sets the stage for everything else we're going to talk about moving forward. Now today, I've entitled to this message, A Biblical View on Homosexuality. Now I realize I just put a lot of you on edge because this is one of the most hotly debated subjects in our modern world. And as I stand here today... I realize that everyone in this room fits into one of three categories when it comes to this issue. Some of you are the convinced. I mean, you, are, you just believe homosexuality is not the ideal. It's a sin. So you are convinced. Others of you fit into the contentious category. You believe as long as there's love and it's consensual, then God's okay with it. And you're kind of ready to fight about this issue tooth and nail. Then there are the rest of you, I think, that fit into the category of the confused. You don't really know what to believe about this issue. Well, we're going to talk about it this morning. Let me say a few things as we begin. First, to the homosexual community, I am so sorry. I am sorry for how many so-called Christians have treated you when it comes to this issue. In fact, just this week, I was watching the news, and there was this uh, uh, pastor that was broadcast on the news for his rant about homosexuality. And now I realize the news network was gaslighting. You understand that? They were gaslighting to prove their point. But what that pastor said about not wanting to be around homosexual people, it was just awful on so many levels. And I want to say this to you this morning. I can't control what other people or other churches say or do but I can control what I say and do. And while others may not welcome you and shun you, I want you to understand that's not going to be the case with me. I want you to know you are welcome in my home, you are welcome in my neighborhood, and you are welcome in the church that I pastor. Second, to those of you that have family and friends that are homosexual, can I just say this? Please learn to love them and treat them with love and respect you can do that even if you don't agree with them about their choice and lifestyle. My own father is living a homosexual lifestyle as we speak, and I love him dearly. And I, I, I will love him, and I will love his partner and respect them no matter what I believe about this issue. And if you mess with either of them, here's the deal, you mess with me, okay? Third, you need to understand this sermon will be based on what the Bible has to say. I told you that in the beginning of this series. Not what I want it to say or how I feel it should say. Not what you want it to say or how you feel it should say. But what does it really say? Fourth, if you're here today and you find yourself wrestling with this issue on any level, I want you to know that you're in the right place. I want you to know that God loves you. And we here at Hope Fellowship love you. And we will walk with you by speaking truth and showing love as you navigate this issue in your life biblically. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to walk through what the entire Bible has to say about homosexuality. You see, what, what a lot of people want to do in both sides of this debate is they want to pick a few verses out of context to support whatever their view is and whatever they want to believe. And can I tell you, that is a surefire way to get it wrong. Right. What I want you to understand as we get going is this. The Bible is not, everybody say not. not. It is not vague or cloudy in the least on this issue. And you find that out when you study it from Genesis to Revelation. And so today is going to feel a little bit more like you're in a college classroom. 
I've got so many notes. In fact, I have 30 or 65 PowerPoint slides for you this morning. I know I've been known to set records, but I got a lot of information. I've already filled in the blanks on your notes for you this morning, so you could just kind of flow with me as we're going to go very, very quickly. Let's begin with where we've begun every sermon in this series so far from the beginning. We're going to start in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Suppose that God wanted to create a world in which marriage required a man and a woman. How would he arrange this world? What sort of story would be told? Perhaps he would first make the man and then make a suitable partner for him. Maybe in an expression of their equality and complementarity, God would fashion the second human out of the first. Maybe the name of the one woman would be derived from her natural complement, man. And in order to show the unique fittedness of the man for the woman, perhaps God would give them a command to be fruitful and multiply. Something that can only be fulfilled by the coming together of two sexes. Maybe the story would end with two, one man and one woman starting a new family together entering into a new covenant relationship. Formalized by an oath and sealed by the sort of physical union capable of perpetuating this family and reflecting their status as image bearers of the divine creator. If, if God wanted to establish a world in which the normative, marital, and sexual relationship is that between two persons of the opposite sex, Genesis chapter 1 and 2 fits perfectly. See, do you understand that the narrative in itself suggests that the church, what the church has uniformly taught throughout the centuries, that marriage is to be between one man and one woman. A different marital arrangement requires an entirely different creation account. One with two men or two women, or at least the absence of any hints of gender, complementarity, or procreation. When you understand that, it's not hard to conclude from a straightforward reading of Genesis 1 and 2 that the divine design for sexual intimacy is not any combination of persons or even any type of two persons coming together, but one man becoming one flesh with one woman. Now, some would argue that conclusion, and let me give you five reasons we are right to think about Genesis 1 and 2 being the establishment of God's design for marriage, and that that design would require one man and one woman. Here's reason number one. The way in which the woman was created indicates that she is the man's divinely designed complement. Remember the story? God creates Adam. Adam. He says, Adam, I want you to name all the animals. He didn't do that because God didn't want to do it. He wanted Adam to realize that all those animals had a, a partner that was different than them. And, and when they came together, there was a creation of more family that came out of that with the animal kingdom. And so God wanted, no, wanted Adam to realize that. And so that's why he had to name the animals. And then he created the woman as his divine complement. Here's number two, reason number two. The nature of the one flesh union presupposes two persons of the opposite sex. Okay? It's very clear from that story. Here's number three. Only two persons of the opposite sex can fulfill the procreative purposes of marriage, okay? You say, well, wait a minute. There's, there's people in our society that say a man can have a baby. No, no, no. That's a lie. It's a woman living as a man having a baby. The science doesn't ever lie. Here's number four. Jesus himself reinforces the normity of the Genesis account. <clears throat> We looked at that uh, in the first week of this series. Jesus actually dealt with this. He said, from the beginning, God created them male and female, that the two would come together in the union of marriage and become one. 
Here's the fifth reason, and this is the biggest reason. In fact, can I just say, if you understand this one properly, uh, you don't really even need to go to the rest of the Bible uh, in the specific verses, but here's the deal. The redemptive historical significance of marriage as a divine symbol in the Bible only works if the marital couple is a complementary pair. We talked about this last week. Marriage is to be a symbol of Christ in the church. And if you don't understand that properly, okay, I'm going to tell you something. You don't understand the gospel properly. If, if God wanted to conclude that men and women are interchangeable in the marriage relationship, not only did he give us the wrong creation narrative, he also gave us then the wrong redemptive narrative. This is why I say in all due respect, a church or a Christian that teaches homosexuality is normal does not understand the Bible or the gospel. Amen. I would run from a church like that. Listen, homosexuality simply does not fit the created order of Genesis chapter 1 and 2. The creation narrative and the redemptive narrative is plenty of evidence that homosexuality is not God's design. But what does the rest of the Bible have to say? Well, let's keep moving along. The first place we run into the issue of homosexuality we're going to just go through it in order. And there's other places that you, it's alluded to or talked about, but the main passages, there's six of them in the Bible beyond the Genesis 1 and chapter 2. Let's start in Genesis chapter 19. In it, you find the story of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, Sodom, understand, that city is where we get our English word sodomy from. It comes from this story in history. Now let's go ahead and pick this story up in verse 4. It says, Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man, let me bring them out to you and you can do, with, do what you like with them. Now that's, can I just say, that's really bad parenting right there. Are you crazy? But don't do anything to these men for they have come under the roof, the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were, were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so that they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, daughters, or sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here because we are going to destroy this place. The outcries of the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. Now, at first glance in this story, the story is pretty clear. There is homoerotic behavior happening and God is going to destroy the city. So what's the message of this story? Well, the first thing I want you to know is this, and I have it in your notes. This story alone cannot be used to condemn all sexual, homosexual behavior, okay? We're not talking about here consensual, monogamous, homosexual sex. Listen, this is violent gang rape of a homosexual nature. And I, and I mention that because Christians have this habit with this story uh, as kind of lock, stock, and barrel of saying, see, homosexuality is wrong. Listen to me for a second. Nobody thinks what's happening in this story is a good thing. Whether you are heterosexual or homosexual, we all agree what's happening in this story is wrong. Could we all be on that same page? Because if I were to ask the average Christian, why did God judge Sodom and Gomorrah? The very first thing they would say is homosexuality. Now hear me, this story alone cannot be used to condemn homosexual behavior. Now the key word is alone. 
But what you do need to understand is this, and I have it in your notes. The commentary of the Bible on this story refers to homosexuality as one of the reasons for judgment. You see, we, we find commentary about Sodom and Gomorrah actually throughout quite a bit of the Bible. Jesus mentions it even in the New Testament as examples. But I want to take you to two passages, one from the Old Testament and one on the New Testament, about why uh, God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's start with the Old Testament passage first. God says this in Ezekiel chapter 16, as I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. Watch this. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. So what you understand right away is you understand God destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah for more of, there was a whole list of things. But one of those sins included in that list is homosexuality. Look at the verse 50. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Now, that word in the Hebrew, abomination, it, it refers to sexual, some kind of sexual immorality. And you ask, well, what was that abomination? Well, it's an echo of what God says in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. In that verse, homosexuality is called an abomination. And we're going to look at that in the next point. But you say, but pastor, how do we know that the abomination Ezekiel is talking about here is homosexuality? How do we know it's not some other type of abomination because of the commentary of this story found in the New Testament? So let's go to the New Testament. Jude, there's only one chapter in Jude. Jude verse 7, it says this, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality, and it was deeper than that, watch this, and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. When it talks about pursuing unnatural desire, it's referring to homosexuality. The Bible always refers to that kind of activity as something that's unnatural. This is not the way it was supposed to be. So what I want you to understand is one of the sins, not all of the sins, but one of them that was happening in Genesis 19 was homosexuality. What you have in Genesis 19 is a society that had decayed to such a degree that God says, I can no longer let this go on the way they're going on because they're hurting too many people and I've got to do something about it. Listen to me. One of the marks of a society that is spiraling to that level will always be unnatural sexual desire openly accepted as normal. Now, I want you to put this story to the side for a moment and I want you to remember it because there's a passage that explains how Sodom and Gomorrah got to where they are in the New Testament that we're going to look at in just a few minutes. So let's just put that Genesis 19 aside for a moment. In the meantime, let's continue our journey to the next spot in the Bible uh, where homosexuality is mentioned. And we find that in Leviticus chapter 18 and 20. Now, this here we're going to read is a list of laws that God told his people to keep. And you're going to notice they're all sexual in nature. And as we read through this list of laws, I want you to decide which ones you think still apply today and which ones you don't still think applies today. So let's begin reading Leviticus chapter 18, verse 6. God says this to the nation of Israel, no one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. I am the Lord. So that's the overall arching principle of some things here that's going to unfold. Now he's going to get specific so that everybody's clear about what he's talking about. Verse 7, do not dishonor your father by having sexual relations with your mother. She is your mother. Do not have relations with her. Do not have sexual relations with your father's wife. That would dishonor your father. Do not have sexual relations with your sister. Either your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether she was born in the same house or elsewhere. Do not have sexual relations with your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter. That would dishonor you. Do not have sexual relations with the daughter of your father's wife born to your father. She is your sister. 
Do not have sexual relations with your father's sister. She is your father's close relative. Do not have sexual relations with your mother's sister because she is your mother's close relative. Verse 14, do not dishonor your father's brother by approaching his wife to have sexual relations. She is your aunt. I mean, God's very specific, isn't he? Do not have sexual relations with your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. Do not have sexual relations with her. Verse 16, do not have sexual relations with your brother's wife. That would dishonor your brother. Do not have sexual relations with both a woman and her daughter. Do not have sexual relations with either her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter. They are her close relatives. That is wickedness. Do not take your wife's sister as a rival wife and have sexual relations with her while your wife is living. Otherwise, if you want to get married again and take her as your bride, you've got to make sure that your other wife's still not living. Everybody got that? Now, so far, this list has been incestual, incestual in nature, but now it goes on to some other things. Look at verse 19. Do not approach a woman to have sexual relations during the uncleanliness of her monthly period. Verse 20, do not have sexual relations with your neighbor's wife and defile yourself with her. Do not have any of your children, do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech, for you must not profane the name of your, your God, I am the Lord. Molech was a false god of the time that the cultures worshipped, and part of their, their worship was sexual immorality, and you would give your kids over and they would be abused and then sacrificed to the gods. Deep stuff God's talking about here. God says, don't do that. Now, here comes the verse involving our discussion today. Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. Verse 23, do not have sexual relations with an animal and defile yourself with it. A woman must not present herself to an animal to have sexual relations with it. That is a perversion. So there is a whole list of sexual sins there. And I would be interested to know which ones you think no longer apply today. Now, if you go over to chapter 20, you have another list, and it's really the same list, uh, just with uh, how they would handle it in their society at that time. And you see it mentioned in Leviticus 20, verse 13 again, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. There's that word, right? Okay, I told you back in Ezekiel. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. So there are two verses in Leviticus about homosexuality, and they both have the same message. Look, don't have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. If a man lies with a, with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. So these are the two passages that, that you run into next. And here's the questions that come up. These, these, questions, this, these, these two passages bring up two very important questions that everybody will throw out when they see this in this context at this spot in the Bible. The two questions are this. What type of sexual sin is this? And do we follow Old Testament laws anymore? So let's start with the first question. What type of sexual sin is this? Well, the issue is clearly biological gender in these verses. You have two of the same biological gender that are not to be involved sexually. Let me show it to you. It's very clear. Look at, the, look at this next slide. You know, do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, as one does with a woman. Some people want to twist this and say, well, this was some type of an abusive relationship like you see back in Genesis chapter 19. No, there is a very clear comparison here as one does with a woman. We're talking about biological gender here. Don't have sexual relations with the same biological gender. Now, here's the second thing you need to understand. Two of the same biological gender are not to have sex even if it's consensual. That's clear from this passage. Why? Because both are held responsible. Look at it. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, what does it say? Both of them have committed an abomination. Otherwise, it was a consensual engagement. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. I mention that because some want to take 
all the homosexual passages in the Bible and try to say that there was something out of the ordinary going on there. Like someone was forced into something that they didn't want. Listen, consensual is the idea here in this verse. Both willingly engaged. That's very clear. And so what I want you to understand is, according to these verses, consensual, monogamous, homosexual sex is a do not do according to these verses. So, two issues. No two biological genders. And whether it's consensual or monogamous or not, do not do it. According to Leviticus chapter 18 and 20, homosexuality is a sin. Now here's question number two that we need to ask. Do we even follow Old Testament laws anymore? Have you ever heard someone say that? Every once in a while someone will say, look, that's Leviticus, that's in the Old Testament that really doesn't matter anymore because you know what? In Leviticus, it also says, don't eat shellfish and don't eat bacon. How many of you had bacon this morning? You could be in trouble if that was the, okay? So, so the point is, because of those things, how can we even follow anything Leviticus has to say? So what their conclusion is is, well, that's just Old Testament law, so that doesn't matter anymore. And can I tell you, that's, those are valid questions and, and valid points, but their conclusions are ignorant. Okay. Let me explain because this is not all this hard to do. Not all that hard to difficult. Here's the first thing I have in your notes. There is nothing in the new Testament that indicates that moral laws of the old Testament no longer apply to us. Lots of people assume that nothing in the old Testament applies to us anymore. Can I tell you, that's not what the Bible teaches at all. Let me show you. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And do you remember what Jesus said the two greatest commandments in the whole Bible were? Love the Lord God with all your what? Heart. And what was the second commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus talked about that in Matthew chapter 2, 22, verse 39. Do you understand? Jesus is quoting from Leviticus chapter yes. 19. Yes. And what does it say? Love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Isn't it interesting that this quote from Jesus comes out of Leviticus 19 and it falls right in between Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20? Some people say, well, those two verses in Leviticus about homosexuality don't apply anymore. Well, Jesus confirms to us what's in chapter 19 sure still applies. So here's what you need to know. Jesus, Peter, and Paul confirmed Levitical moral laws that still apply to us today. Just read your New Testament. They're constantly quoting out of Leviticus and the rest of the law, the rest of the first five books of the Bible. They're all referencing moral laws of God, even, get this, after Jesus' death and resurrection. So be careful before you throw out all the Levitical laws. So the question then is, how do we know which ones still apply today and those that don't? Well, let me help you with that, okay? Which ones still apply and which ones don't? Here's the first question to ask. Was it repeated in the New Testament? That's question number one. Number two, is it a law about food? Okay, because if it's a law about food, it no longer applies. Okay, because those food laws were meant to teach them about holiness and being right with God. They didn't make them holy before God. And they were pictures of what people needed to do in the long run spiritually to get right with God. Jesus. So look what Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, verse 18 and 19. Do you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. And then look what it says here, the commentary. I didn't put this quote in it. This is in the verse. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. And then there's the story in Acts chapter 10. How many of the story with Peter and Cornelius? was trying to teach Peter that all people, I want all people to be saved and don't call anything unclean that I've made clean. And so you can go there. So question number two, if I need to follow it anymore, is it a law about food? Because if it is, that's not something you have to follow anymore. Here's question number three. 
Is it a law about ceremony or sacrifice? How many of you are thankful you didn't bring a, have to bring a lamb or a goat to be sacrificed here this morning? We don't do that anymore. Do you know why? Because all the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, all that pointed to the reality of one day what Jesus would do for us on the cross and how we would get right with God through Jesus. And so all the celebrations, all the Jewish festivals in the Old Testament, it's, it's, not, it's okay to celebrate them, but they are not required celebrations anymore because all their fulfillment is found in Jesus. So we just worship Jesus now. Amen. Aren't you thankful God made it a lot more simpler for us? Look what it says here. Paul says in Colossians chapter two, verse 16 through 17, he says, therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. This probably explains to you the one command in that Levitical list that you would say, I'm not sure about that one. Remember the command about do not have sexual relations with your wife if she's having her monthly time. Now, I I know you thought we'd never be hearing this in service. (laughs) I still don't think that's a good idea, okay? (laughs) But what I'm saying to you is the reason why God said no to that is because the only blood that was to ever be shed in the temple was the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sin. This is why a woman was not allowed in the temple during her monthly cycle. And and if a man had sexual relations, it would make him unclean. So don't do that because you're not to enter the temple unclean. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. Here's question number four. Is it a civil law for the nation of Israel? Okay. God set civil laws down for the nation of Israel during that period of time of how they're to handle things in their community, okay? This is why at times God says, put them to death for this. And don't, don't think it was just for homosexuality. There was a whole lot of things that God said, put them to death for this, put them to death for this, put them to death for this. Listen, if you rebelled against your parents, your parents had the right to put you to death under Old Testament law. Some of you would have never made it to adulthood, I'm just saying. Okay? Those civil laws were only meant for the nation of Israel. So here's what you need to know. There are three types of laws in the, in, the Old Test, in the Old Testament law. There's the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil law. We are no longer bound to the ceremonial law or the civil law, but we're still to follow the moral law. Amen. And homosexuality is a moral law because it's repeated in the New Testament as a moral law. So let's go to the New Testament, Romans chapter 1. Paul writes this, therefore God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts. Now, why did God give them over? Because they said, we don't want to live by your ways, God. We want to do it our way. God's like, I'm not going to force you, but this is not going to be good. But if that's the way you want to live, I'll give you free will and free choice. That's the idea. Therefore, God gave them over in in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. Talking about homosexuality. Remember I told you, the Bible always refers to homosexuality, whether it's men with men or women with women, as unnatural. It's not the way it was designed to be. You say, how do we know we're talking about lesbian there or homosexuality? Well, verse 27 confirms it. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations. You see that? With women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. So here's what I want you to get. Paul echoes the Levitical commands of the Old Testament on homosexuality. Look at it. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relationships and what had lust for one another. Now, let's go back to what I told you to put aside. Romans chapter 1 explains what happened to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay? And it actually happens to any society that says, God, we don't want you anymore and we don't want to do it your way. So let me help you see this I want to read a little more here in Romans chapter 1, starting back in verse 21. And it starts with this. They reject God. So the idea is the society rejects God, says we want to do it our way. And and it says this in verse 21, 
For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal humans, beings, and birds and animals and reptiles. You say, what is that about? You know what happens when man rejects God? They create their own system of religion. They create their own system of how a person they think should get right with God, and it's false religion. That's what the idea is. Now watch this. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Do you know where a society will instantly go when they decide they don't want to do it God's way? It'll instantly turn into a sexual revolution. And that's what you have happening here. And then it says in verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. And then what happens then is that it spirals even further to an unnatural sexual revolution. Look at this. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations with for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty of their error. And so it spirals even further. You go from a sexual revolution to a homosexual revolution or an unnatural sexual, uh, sexual revolution, calling things normal that should never be called normal. And then it leads to a deprived society. Look at this. Furthermore, they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. So God gave them over to a deprived mind. You see that? So that they did not, so they did not do what ought to be, to be done. They have, they have become filled, watch this, with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. It sounds like a lot of where our society is starting to become on an increasing level. There's a reason for that. They are gossips, Slanderers, oh, come on, social media, right? They disobey their parents. They don't listen to any authority anymore. They have, or, or let me go back. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. And so what I want you to understand is this. Let me put the next slide up. What Paul is describing here is what happens to any society that rejects him, that wants to do it their way. And God says, look, I'm not going to force you. But what happens is it actually is a downward spiral. This explains what happened in Genesis chapter 19. So what happens is a society rejects God and it leads to their own system of what they think is right and wrong. And that leads to a sexual revolution. Then that leads to an unnatural sexual revolution. And then you have a society that is totally depraved. So what I want you to understand is homosexuality is not the reason for our society being where it's heading. It's just a symptom of it. This started way back in the 60s with let's love, make love and not war. And it has spiraled and it continues to spiral now to the point where people are saying you could be any gender that you want. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks, by the way, because you parents need to know how to handle that with your kids. Father's Day, by the way. Can you imagine? We're going to talk about that on Father's Day. But we're going to talk about that on Father's Day. This is what happens to any society that rejects God. And you look at history. Do you understand? This is how Rome fell. It fell from within. Societies that don't want God will spiral into this death spiral. Can I ask you a question? Is our our country getting more loving or, or, or less loving? Less loving. Is our country getting more violent or less loving? Violent. It's because we said we don't need you. And we've decided we're going to do it our way. And that always leads to a sexual revolution, to an unnatural sexual revolution, to a deprived society where minds don't even think straight. There was a, there was a story not too long ago of one of our high-up officials in government that, that was before Congress and asked, can a woman, a man have a baby? And she said, yes. That's a lie. That's a woman who's living as a man having a baby. The science will never lie. That's depravity of mind. So it shouldn't surprise you what's going on in our society. Now, let's move on from Romans chapter 1. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I need to move here. We've read this one already in this, in this series a couple times, but let's look at it again. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. 
neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor, watch this, men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And once again, I want to ask you, which of those sins do you think no longer applies? And some would make the argument here, well, you know, this is something different. This is, this is just, the, but Paul's talking about homosexual prostitution because that's where the passage is going to lead to, uh, you know, in, in, in people. No, the Greek word there is very, it's, it's literally men who have sexual intercourse with other men. It's very clear. And I love verse 11 because it doesn't leave us with any hope. It, it leaves us with hope. Watch this. And that is what some of you were. You see that? But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So out of this one section of Scripture, let me give you three thoughts. Here's the first one. Homosexuality is serious and sinful. You can't read the Bible and not come to that conclusion. Here's number two. And this is, this is so big. Homosexuality is not a lifestyle to be celebrated, but a sin to be forgiven. Okay? That doesn't mean you don't love people and respect them. Amen? But there's just certain things that society wants me to celebrate that I can't. There's certain things with my father that I can't celebrate even though I can love him and respect him. And there's going to be that tension and I'm going to have to live with that tension because that's exactly where Jesus lived. We're going to talk about that in the last week of this series. So homosexuality is not a lifestyle to be celebrated but a sin to be forgiven. And here's the, here's the one I want you to get because there's such a lie in our society that says that's just the way you are. Listen, what this passage tells us is homosexuality is, is not inescapable. It's not inescapable. I'm going to tell you right now, there are people in this church that were once living that lifestyle that are now living for God and no longer living that lifestyle. There are people in this church that have struggled with those issues and would even tell you, at times, I still have to wrestle those temptations that are now married and living in, in a monogamous relationship with a woman and have a great family and God's doing great things. Listen, sexual immorality of any kind is escapable with Jesus. And the lie of society is it's unescapable. It's just who you are. Listen, you are never called to embrace the brokenness of your fall from sin. You're called to embrace your identity in Christ who came to rescue you from the fall, not just to set you free from the penalty of your sin, but also from the power of your sin in your life. Homosexuality is not inescapable. That's a lie of society. I see it happen all the time. I've watched it over the years. God is a redeemer, amen? God is a restorer. He's a forgiver. And that's why I say you are welcome here. But understand, we're going to tell you what the Bible has to say. And we're going to love you no matter where you are. But if you don't want to turn towards the gospel, you will struggle being at this church. For any issue in your life if you don't want to believe it's a sin and that happens all the time people come to hope fellowship a lot of times and they love that we accept everybody and we do but they don't stay here unless they repent because it gets uncomfortable when we preach the gospel this is why i say a church that is teaching and preaching that homosexuality is okay or any of those sexual issues are okay doesn't understand the gospel and i would run it's just the truth of the reality go to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 through 11. This is the last one. Paul says, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and the irreligious. So the law is meant to show you your need for a savior is the point. For the, watch this, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. 
that confirms to the gospel according to the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. So once again, I want to ask you, what sins in that list do you think no longer applies? Two things. You can't decide the Bible is authoritative and then decide what parts are authoritative for you. It's either authoritative and it's not. If you want to say it's not authoritative and you want to learn different, hey, man, we, have, we, are, uh, that, we get that. But when you say the Bible is authoritative, but then you want to pick and choose, it does not line up. Here's the last thing I want to say, and I love this point. The Bible condemns the act of homosexuality, not same-sex attraction. Some of you wrestle with this. But you know what the truth is? We all wrestle with sexual temptations, me included. We're all sexually broken. We talked about that in this series at all. It's not the temptation and dealing with it. It's the sin. It's engaging in it. Amen? And I think that's important for you to see. Notice, for the sexually immoral, for those, but practicing, you see that? Homosexuality. So, I want you to know if you struggle with that. We all struggle with something sexually broken. I promise you that. And we're all in the same boat, different issues. And it's never about find your identity in your brokenness. It's always about finding your identity in Christ. Amen. Final thoughts. I'm going to ask Amy to come. We'll close. It is such a quiet day in here. (laughs) Number one, the Bible's teaching is consistent and clear. God forbids homosexual activity. It's very clear. I I can make that case just out of Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and the whole redemptive history part. That alone, the pictures in the Bible prove that. You don't even have to go to the verses, but it's very, very clear, and there are verses that support that. And you need to know there's going to be all kinds of people out there that are going to try to twist those verses and make them say what they want. That's why you need to know what the Bible says from cover to cover, because anybody can fool you. How many know the devil even knows the Bible? Here's number two. God condemns all forms of sexual activity outside of marriage between a husband and wife. So to understand, this is not about just don't live a homosexual lifestyle. Don't live an immoral sexual lifestyle, period. That's what we teach and preach. Don't do that outside of a marriage between a husband and wife. That's the consistent message of this church. And that's the consistent message of the Bible. Here's number three. The beauty of the gospel is everyone can be forgiven and doesn't have to... and doesn't the beauty of the gospel is every sin can be forgiven and doesn't have to define you that's what the world says well this is just the way you are oh the way you are is broken and Jesus came to set the captives free Jesus says the truth will set you free your struggle number four your struggle with sin may be lifelong that's true for every one of us You're going to battle things in the flesh until you see Jesus face to face one day and get a new body. How many are looking forward to that? So whether you're dealing with heterosexual sin or homosexual sin, I would guess you're still going to struggle with some of that to the day you die. But it doesn't need to be your identity. Your identity needs to be Christ. And you want to know what his identity looks like? the Word of God. It is His identity from Genesis to Revelation. And there's power in the Word of God, not only to renew your mind, but to wash you and cleanse you and sanctify you. When that happens, the power of God can come flowing into your life. Listen, you need the power of God in your life. I promise you this, and it isn't that God doesn't love you, He cares about you, but when you decide you want to do this without God, you always rob yourself of the power of God. I promise you this, I've pastored it for 20 years. The world would like you to think that it all works out great, and it all works out perfect, and and it's a beautiful thing. Let me tell you what, 
People who go into sexual immorality, it always spirals their life and their families and adds baggage that they don't need. It brings brokenness. Jesus came to not only set you free of the brokenness, but to help you stay free of that brokenness and walk in victory. And so whether your sin is heterosexual sin or homosexual sin, the command is still the same. It's to live your identity in Jesus. Amen. All right, we did it. I want to say this. If there are any issues you want to talk about, my door's open. My door's open. Some of you may be struggling, and I want you to tell you if you're struggling, you are welcome here at Hope Fellowship. We will love you. We will embrace you. But because we love you, we will lovingly walk with you and be patient with you, but we will steer you towards your identity in Christ because that's where power is found. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for today. Lord, I thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that as we leave this place, that we would understand how to separate the discipleship the world tries to give us from how you want us to live. And Lord, I pray, Father, that you would just help us to be discerning and to be wise to what we hear and to what we celebrate in a culture that is quickly spiraling downward. Lord, may we be a shining light. Lord, may we be people that know how to love and respect no matter what other people in our lives believe, that we may be a light in this world that leads people to freedom in Christ. Lord, I I pray if there's any struggling with any kind of sexual immorality, Lord, I pray that they would find their identity in you, Lord name of Jesus. Lord, we love you and we praise you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need prayer, I'm going to ask our prayer partners to come. Anything in your life, we'd love to pray with you. Ask the Lord to work in that area of your life. God bless you. Thanks for coming. We'll see you next week. Have a great Sunday.